following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Hello, listeners around the world on radio, streaming, and podcast services. This is It's Not Therapy. I'm Leanna Kersner, and I am not a therapist, but I am your source for navigating the madness of mental health, using my top 10 sayings for checking in with your best self. This week, we're talking about how to get good at feeling bad. What? Why would I want to do that? You may be asking. It's not clickbait. I swear. Hear me out. I've got Rutgers University researcher Richard Contrada, PhD, on later to talk about the benefits of negative emotions. But first, as usual, a look inside my very strange brain. You might be feeling bad listening to this right now. You might even feel exhausted from how bad you feel. These days, the news is like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War, famine, pestilence, and death. A lot of us feel worse and behave worse than we have to, though. We're taught to repress, ignore, and deny negative emotions instead of seeing the purpose they bring to our lives. That causes us to blow up at people who aren't the problem, communicate poorly, push good people away, and generally get in our own way. When we're constantly scanning for danger, we often get false positives, and that results in mistakes we don't often get the chance to fix because the person we blew up at, especially if we blow up at them multiple times, ends up just being done with us. We like to think of ourselves as rational beings, and that often doesn't help very much when it comes to dealing with emotions. As much as we focus on logic in our society, smart people are logical, right? Well, smart people still have feelings and emotions happen faster than cognitive thoughts. We're often not immediately aware of how they're impacting our decision-making until we recognize emotions happen faster than cognitive thoughts. Think about the brainless ways that we attempt to console people. Oh, don't cry. Smile for me. I hate seeing you so upset. When we actually break down what these statements are saying, they're all asking the other person to consider our comfort when we say them more than their own emotional expressions. Then there are the messages that are even worse. Telling people they're a downer or no fun to be around. And yeah, some people are downers and that they can find a black cloud in every single lining. But those people more often than not are just trying to seek, you know, importance. Seem like they're never wrong because they always find the bad thing. Instead of people who are sincerely depressed. When you say to somebody, you're such a downer or you're no fun, you're treating somebody like an entertainment committee as opposed to a whole person that gets down sometimes. Here's the thing about people with depression. Most depressed people try very, very hard to mask as not depressed, which can make the depression worse because it's something they feel like they have to hide, and so they feel shame. 
They constantly feel like they're failing because they can't smile more. They can't just look on the bright side. They can't just get over it. So if a friend seems constantly down, ask them if they want some help strategizing improvements instead of just labeling them. Don't ask anyone to pretend everything is great when it's not. Top 10 phrase, ignoring negatives isn't being positive. The truth is that the more we fight feeling those negative emotions, the stronger they become. Whereas the more we seek to understand our negative emotions and validate that these negative emotions have a place, well, then we're more likely to process them and get back to being happy. And that idea of getting back to being happy is the first key to getting better at feeling bad. Everyone has a baseline level of happiness. Some of that is biochemical. Some of it is based on the patterns we learned growing up. Another piece is about our environment and whether or not it's validating the best parts of us instead of encouraging our worst inclinations. And then there's the psychological components that we can change within ourselves that shows like this can focus on. When you're feeling down, you have a choice in the story you tell yourself about those feelings. You can tell yourself that the bad feelings are temporary and you will feel good again eventually. Or you can treat the bad feelings as normal and the good times as fleeting, temporary, and ultimately a lie, distracting you from the core misery of your rotten existence. If the latter sounds more familiar as an internal monologue, you probably had at least one parent who modeled that type of thinking. Or you had a parent who was so afraid of their own feelings that you sh they shut you down every time you tried to talk about your feelings. Most of the time, anyway. My biological father went through a lengthy self-help phase that did not help anyone at all. He'd read books by Wayne Dyer, who was one of the big self-help names at the time. Then he'd bellow at the top of his lungs that his children had to learn to control our emotions. Now, the irony of the contradiction between his demands and his own behavior would have been hilarious if the man wasn't just violent enough to be terrified. Obviously, my birth father was not in control of his own emotions. So, ergo, he was in no position to lecture anyone else about emotional control. But the concept of emotional control is a lie. We can't control our emotions any more than we can stop a river with our bare hands. We can only control what we do and say as a result of our emotional states and build those stories, those narratives, like the one I just gave you about feeling bad feelings that encourage the positive emotions and minimize the impact of the negative ones. Now, in order to do that, it's very important to acknowledge that we can't control our emotions. We have to acknowledge that we can't control our emotions if we want to control our actions when emotions run high. We also 
can't act in a controlled way if we're feeling something that we don't understand. If we spend our whole lives denying that we're afraid, sad, or angry because we've been taught that those emotions are inherently bad, then we won't react well when we're afraid, sad, or angry because we don't have the opportunity to develop strategies for dealing with the negative emotions we are denying we have. That may seem obvious to some people, but I see this breakdown a lot. It was something I had to face in myself. I spent so much time afraid that I couldn't recognize I was afraid. That was just normal. Fear was baseline. Naming and contextualizing your feelings is a learned skill that many families teach entirely wrong. Many peer groups teach entirely wrong. And pretty much every academic institution under the sun teaches this entirely wrong. There's a telltale sign when someone doesn't know how to name and contextualize their feelings. They misuse I feel statements to state opinions. Now, this isn't because they're trying to be manipulative. It's because they think they're talking about their feelings, but the statement contains 0% actual emotional content. Here's an example. I feel that you are wrong. I get this one so much, but that's the thing. I feel that you are wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. So what? People are wrong all the time. I feel that you are wrong gives me no information regarding how to proceed with the speaker in a more productive way. People are wrong all the time. What does it matter? Does the person feel accused? Does the person feel misunderstood? Is it hitting some button somehow? Who cares if someone's wrong? What's the feeling? Another one is, I feel that you attacked me. And that's not a feeling. I feel attacked is a feeling. But I feel that you attacked me is an accusation with a passive aggressive twist. Feeling attacked and accusing someone attacking you are completely different things. How does that work? Well, we can all relate to feeling attacked, but we all also don't like to be accused of something we didn't do. So in a scenario where say, someone's trying to help and they just misspeak, they don't know that something's gonna land the way it did. And then they get accused of attacking. It makes it sound like they meant to do it and it's an escalation of bad feelings instead of moving closer to a productive resolution. And this is the whole reason we teach I feel statements. We encourage people to use I feel statements not because we're tree-hugging hippies that like to go um and appropriate Easter traditions. We teach I feel statements to make communication clearer. I felt hurt when you told me my idea was stupid because I worked hard on it is much clearer than I feel you attacked my work. 
But this is where it gets tricky, right? Because so many people would rather die than admit to another person that they're hurt, scared, or feeling otherwise vulnerable. And that's due to shame. We've talked about shame before. We will talk about shame next week. Shame is the topic next week. We're going to stay on feeling bad feelings right now, getting good at it. If you clearly state an emotion and someone doesn't show empathy for that, that's a them problem, not a you problem. You can hold your head up high saying, I was honest. I said what was bothering me. That guy was a jerk or that woman dismissed me or, you know, that non-binary person clearly wasn't in a place to receive the message. Okay. But that is no failing on your part. That's a them problem. But if you don't clearly express where you're coming from, because you either don't have the emotional vocabulary or you don't have confidence or trust in your environment, that could be a you problem. It could be an environmental problem. Either way, it's time to reassess. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments about what I've said, Leanna at nottherapyshow.com or nottherapyshow.com, the website, fill out the contact form, join my mailing list while you're there, at nottherapyshow on X, formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, and threads. Uh, anything at all, even if you're looking for some help matching with an appropriate type of therapist. I know a lot because I interview quite a few. Uh, did a matchup just this week. I was very, very happy to assist with that. And this brings us to our first break. When we come back, Rutgers University researcher Richard Contrada, PhD, is going to talk to us about the positives of negatives because ignoring negatives isn't being positive. Back in a bit on It's Not Therapy. The following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on Estet Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kirsten. I'm still not a therapist and it's time for the interview. Everybody's favorite part of the show, at least my favorite part of the show. Uh, we're talking one of my top 10 phrases, ignoring negatives isn't being positive and I've got Richard Contrada, PhD. Richard is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Rutgers State University of New Jersey. Richard, thanks for coming on to talk about the positives of negatives. It's good to be with you. Now, you wrote an article in Psychology Today that I really, really connected to. One, because you talked about people saying, well, it's in our DNA and not everything in human nature is you know, an adaptive trait in terms of Darwinism, but you argued that negatives, there are benefits on kind of sitting and dealing with negative feelings. So the first thing you talked about was anger. How how can you argue that anger can be a positive force? Well, uh, anger is uh, often a reaction to a perceived violation uh, you know, something that the person finds to be very important belief, uh, even a moral belief. Uh, and so it's revealing of the person's, uh, you know, sort of morals. Um, and if that's your anger that you're ruminating about, um, it uh, could be useful to take a, a deep dive into that principle or moral that you think was violated that, that may have led to your emotion, which may not always be so clear to you in the moment. 
Yeah, it does. Anger is a particular one that it does often take a bit to realize either why am I angry or I'm not really angry. I'm angry because I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel scared. You know, it's a sort of complex secondary emotion. But somewhere along the line, and it happened in my lifetime, when I was younger, there was this sense that anger was okay as long as you're not destructive about it. Now there seems to be this sense of it's never okay to get angry, that getting angry is you're doing something wrong somehow. Have you encountered this attitude as well? And and how do you counter it? Uh, it's, uh, it's happened, sure. Uh, angry expressions can be ugly. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And, and then the person on the other side is feeling angry or, or anxious or, or sad. Um, so how it's, it's all about actually, you know, how you express it and what you do with it. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's the major theme. Um, so, um, you, you can err on either side. Uh, um, you, you could be too quick to dismiss the anger without examining it. And then you could just let it ride and, you know, get into all kinds of, uh, problems. Yeah. Now, now you single out righteous anger as something that actually can have actively good effects that when it's expressed appropriately you specify how do you appropriately express anger you uh, see so much of this now you know with um, social media and political punditry and all um where it's it's so destructive because people are demonizing mm -hmm. the object of their anger uh and i i had a colleague who uh had a way of showing anger in his face with uh without vocalizing it and without saying things that would be you know inciting of another person's anger in response and just that little bit of sort of measured expression of the disapproval the anger um along with the right words and it's really mm -hmm. all about how you put it into language uh as well as controlling the more automatic vocal and physical expressions Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I find for me, at least healthy anger was difficult, uh, battling back from, you know, PTSD, being acutely uh, symptomatic, and then spending a year battling back from that. One of the things for me with anger is, okay, I'm angry. I'm not going to do anything about it until I know why and until I have a plan what to do with it. But to me, even admitting to myself that was I was angry took some practice. You know, oh, you're angry, you're bad, you're not being fair, you're not being sent, all, all this stuff that we, the more you fight these negative feelings, I find the stronger a hold they get, they get over you. You're less in control, you're less able to catch it, recognize what you're feeling and do something productive with it. So, you know, you talk about looking beyond the immediate trigger and how to apply it to some worthy principle. What are some things people can do to start that process? Well, um, you have to be in a, in a place and, and, and at a time when, when you can be reflective. So it's really hard to do in the moment. Um, so as you imply, you have to kind of wait and let it flow and run its course. You know, they're, they're passions, they're, they're visceral, they, they have a their own timeline, their own shelf life. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to get beyond that. And then you have to, um, you know, avoid the temptation to just dismiss it. 
you know, because it's unpleasant to think about. I'm just going to put it out of my mind. Um, and that can be just as impractical as, you know, letting it control you and, and being mm -hmm. too aggressive. Um, so, you know, you don't want to dismiss it and, and you don't want to just let it control you. And, and you want to get in the middle there someplace. Yeah. You never totally successfully dismiss it too, right? It ends up coming out at the wrong person, you know, oh, I, th this isn't worth getting upset about, but you are still upset. And so instead of it being the person that actually did the behavior that caused you to feel that way, you take it out on a loved one, your spouse, your kid, you know, a colleague who was a safer target. And that kind of gets into that idea of negative emotions as information. If you dismiss the information logically you dismiss a piece of data you get less good results so wh where is this kind of maladaption coming from that emotions are information we see this so why do people dismiss them so often well uh it's uh it is because they're powerful and because we're probably not so effective um either in, in the home or, or in, in the classroom, uh, or even in, you know, religious settings, perhaps, um, in teaching people um, the specific skills, uh, not just the principle, you know, don't dismiss your anger is useless advice unless you tell the person how not to do it. Um, and, and so, you know, they call this procedural knowledge in cognitive mm -hmm, science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, tell me exactly how you do it. I suppose the people who've worked the most on this and have specific techniques are cognitive behavioral therapists, therapists who are trained in that in that approach. Uh, and there are good books and sources out there uh, for getting very specific, even like homework mm -hmm. uh, assignments that you, help you to work with your anger or other negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, why, you probably can't answer this. It's a big existential question, but what are some reasons that we got so bad at this as a culture? Because we weren't, we weren't always as terrible at this as we are. There seems to be as streamlining when education and training became about facts and logic um, I'm a Star Trek fan, uh, you know, the whole idea of a Vulcan being logical, meaning they had no emotions. It's not true. Spock always had emotions. Other Vulcans always had emotions. It was just a question of processing them. And I mean, the 60s Star Trek was pretty touchy-feely hippie. How do we go from that to where we are now that negative emotions are a sign we're doing something wrong and therefore this massive source of anxiety? Well, I, I'm sure I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. Uh, it's always so hard to, you know, do a causal analysis. Yeah. History. History is, you know, not an experimental discipline and I'm not a historian. Uh, but, you know, what, one thing that comes to mind is technology. Um, and, um, uh, it, 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 you know, it's so easy now to angrily express your, you know, outrage with a click or, or press on your phone or what have you. Um, and uh, uh, people who are the recipient of that, which happens more and more, you know, don't don't like it. Uh, there's the, you know, the history of political campaigns is interesting because you have, uh, you know, this occasion in which uh, Ronald Reagan um, 
angrily complained, but in a controlled way, about the way they were conducting a debate uh, during one of his uh, campaigns. Um, and that is thought to be a moment that he had that really turned a lot of people uh, to, to you know, uh, support him. Uh, but now, like an angrily outraged politician, you know, it's a dime a dozen. Um, and, and, you know, I think not to blame technology, because it's not the technology, it's how it's used. But um, certainly that's a part of it, I would say. Well, it's interesting because you go back in history uh, and go back to the advent of the printing press when people mm. could do these short little pamphlets relatively quickly. You saw a similar uptick in angry pamphleting, you know, anonymous pamphlet writing that was horribly defamatory against some public figure using facts that were absolutely not verifiable. Uh, do our brains just get overloaded by information? And is this sort of angry cover response uh, some sort of symptom of plain old overwhelm? Uh, well, yes, I do think that uh, just the sheer amount of stimulation, it's not even always information uh, that, that that bombards us, um, has all kinds of consequences. Um, it's I remember Milgram had a film where he analyzed urban behavior in terms of how uh, all the cognitive kind of input and overload may explain why people in cities at least are perceived to be colder and more distant and don't make eye contact. Um, and, you know, um, we're talking about this era where, you know, books like Future Shock uh, you know, are old. <laughs> and, you know, it's like always the case that this is like the worst time in history for whatever it is. And then um, it, it, seem, it seems to, to, to get worse. So, um, yeah, it's difficult to unplug and, and, and control the input. And if you use mental resources to respond to it, uh, or even just to take it in or try to take it in, those are mental resources you can't use in other ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I noticed that from moving from the city out into the edge of the country, people do take more time with each other. They assume a sameness that they don't in the city. And that definitely brings your guard down. But the pace of life is also significantly slower. And that gets to this concept of rumination. And I'm going to let that percolate for a minute because we have to go to a break. Uh, when we come back, more with Rutgers University's Richard Contrada, PhD, talking about the positives of negatives, what to do with negative emotions, how they can be appropriate and productive. When we come back on It's Not Therapy, questions, concerns, comments, Lieta at Not Therapy Show, Not Therapy Show. Join our mailing list while you're there or at Not Therapy Show on X, Instagram, and threads. More than we come back on getting good at feeling bad on It's Not Therapy. The following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on It's Not Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kersner. I'm still not a therapist. And we're still talking the positives of negatives, how to get better at feeling bad. And we're still in the interview. We're still talking to Rutgers University's Richard Contrada, PhD. And before the break, we got into broach the subject of rumination. And I'm very interested in the your approach to this because you you treat things as sort of a neutral in terms of morality that, you know, going back to Aristotle and the, the immoral state does it sort of the amoral state as opposed to the immoral or moral state. 
And you say things like shame and guilt can be just there. They're data. They're not something to run from the same as anger. But you also talk about the concept of rumination and revealing a problem that you wouldn't recognize if you didn't take the time to sit in the guilt, to sit in the shame. And, you know, we live in an age where the, you know, the coffee table book talking point is shame, bad, guilt, bad, you know. How does your area of research um, explain why ruminating on these deeply, deeply painful feelings can be beneficial? Well, you know, easier said than done. You yeah. know, do as I say, don't do as I do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, I, it's a challenge. Um, uh, it, it, rumination is often quite automatic um, and uh, blends in with what are called automatic thoughts, automatic, usually negative thoughts, um, that are just really hard to control. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, it, you know, it's something maybe that's aspirational. Uh, I, I don't have my own techniques, uh, except this is a, you know, a non-professional, uh, for, 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 for doing that. Um, you, you know, the name of my blog series is, uh, a little bit of knowledge, but, you know, having now come across your material, I might've called it, um, this isn't science because, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, I don't know that science has effective ways that many people can benefit from to control and mm -hmm. take advantage of the rumination because we'd all know about it if if they did so uh outside of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, which does address this i'm not sure where the evidence is i don't i don't have my own evidence for a technique that that would work i could just give you know examples and personal anecdotes yeah, it's really idiosyncratic, isn't it? And that's part of the sort of issue with the research. We we see what happens. We observe the phenomenon. But then you get into the actual therapy part of it. And there there is no one size fits all approach. There's nothing that's going to work for every single person. I know that actually sitting with the negative emotions, the embarrassment, the shame of things I did when I was symptomatic is a good motivator to do the work so that I stay asymptomatic. That's how it worked for me. But a lot of people really get lost in it. And we've sort of medicalized the whole process, haven't we? That intrusive thoughts, always bad, always sign of a problem. Anxiety, always bad. Feeling low mood. Oh, I have depression. How do you separate these, uh, you know, you put it in, in very, very... Um, artistic language, morals, aesthetics, pleasures, fears, dreams, right? Life's meaning. How do we separate that from things that are actually disordered? Well, we as individuals uh, can uh, try to take an attitude uh, in which we sort of play the devil's advocate with ourself. Okay. So that's using self-talk in a controlled way uh, and, and, and almost arguing with yourself or negotiating with yourself. Okay, I, I feel ashamed of something that happened, um, but argument's sake, um, should I? Uh, what, you know, what, uh, what did happen and is there another way to think about it? Mm -hmm. uh, so 
entertaining propositions that are the opposite of your instinct, of your intuition, uh, keeping a kind of open mind about it. Um, but again, it's, you know, it's easier said, said than done. I can't, you know, I don't know how to get people to do that except to advise them to try. Yeah. So you're saying that the ability to, to perspective take for, you know, to use another terminology for it indicates that this may be a healthy process as opposed to something that's having a negative impact on your life. Yeah. What can I, and also what can I, what can I, how can I benefit? E even if I can't see a great, you know, alternative explanation and which it's not terrible, uh, you know, you have these expressions, what's done is done. Um, you know, you do the best with what you've got. Uh, you've got lemons, make, right? We have mm -hmm. all kinds, you know, mm -hmm. these kinds of uh, um, idioms that, that you know, encourage us to uh, not only move past it after considering it, but uh, make something good of it. Don't, you know, fool me once, don't mm -hmm. let it happen again. Yeah. These, you know, these adages can be really useful. I mean, the name of your blog, a little knowledge, dot, 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 is a dangerous thing. Uh, one of the things I hear from a lot of researchers is the more you learn, the more you realize what's unknown about the human brain and about human behavior. And have, have you found that to be true? Oh, yeah. You know, it's something I don't like to write about because there is good, useful science out there that we want people to uh, take advantage of and believe in. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an awful lot that isn't good. There's uh, what people call a replication crisis where research findings can't be reproduced. Mm -hmm. There's um, frank making up of data. Um, there's um, people just motivated to believe their hypothesis, even unconsciously, um, and sort of favoring it in ways. Um, and everything, you know, that's interesting um, I'll say everything, but most of what's interesting is preliminary. You know, here's a new finding. We don't know what it means. It's a new finding. Um, and it may take years, uh, even if it is a good finding, to uh, to nail it down and, you know, really flush it out. So um, absolutely, yeah, the, you know, there, there's uh, all kinds of pitfalls uh, if you take, you know, so-called scientific statements li literally. Yeah, I saw a headline the other day of the Mediterranean diet can reduce or prevent PTSD symptoms. <laughs> Good Lord, if it were that easy, I, it, it, you look at it, it's a study of 191 people, the cohorts, very homogenous. It so I, I get why major news services run these things. People are interested. It gets clicks. It's a human interest story, but that can create a false certainty in a person of, oh, I don't have to do that hard rumination work. I don't have to challenge my thoughts. I can just eat a certain thing or take a certain drug or do some sort of avoidant behavior or replacing behavior and it'll solve all my problems. We have seen again and again and again, the science says that's not so correct. Yeah. It, you know, it, it may be true under certain conditions for certain kinds of people on the average uh, but there's variability, there's yeah. different kinds of people, there's different kinds of circumstances. And what's really scary to me is when this gets into physical health and medical care, mm -hmm. uh, I just got a, a test result that said that my bone density is is low. And I asked about, well, what does that mean? You know, and, and what they're doing is they're comparing your bone density to healthy 20-year-old men. Yes. And it's like, yep, yeah, okay. Um, 
you know, it's been a long time since I was a 20 year old healthy. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, uh, it's ubiquitous. And, you know, medical is a particularly dicey area because people want to believe it. Uh, we want to believe there's the correct answer and the, and the correct treatment, but, yeah. but it's ubiquitous. The the challenge with psychology, especially in the areas of, you know, stress and self-regulation, there's no blood test. There's no easy pass fail to determine whether something is good for somebody, whether something isn't the negative physical response to stress, you know, hits a point. Like you said, it's different for every single person and different types of stress affect people differently. So what is a way that someone can check in and go all right this is just life into each life some rain must fall and one is okay i can do better than this there's a tool i'm missing well one set of tools that are worth people's looking into are stress management tools uh which you know take the approach that stress is uh inevitable uh I was once at a conference where the topic was introduced by saying everything in life is stressful and everything you do is coping. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so the question then can become, well, what can you do afterwards? Um, and there are a lot of techniques out there. You could get handbooks um, and they'll take you through how to reduce stress by working on your body, say progressive muscle relaxation, uh, working with your mind, say mindful meditation, uh, breathing exercises, um, and, and others. Um, and while the science um, isn't definitive on uh, some of those, and we know less about how they work, when they work, mm -hmm. um, it, that does not a barrier for it to work for you. Um, you won't want to fool yourself into thinking it's working, but um, it, it, you can make things work for yourself that haven't been demonstrated fully. And sometimes things that look like they're really well demonstrated don't work for you. So it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no easy answers. Richard Contrada, PhD professor in the Department of Psychology at Rutgers. Uh, Richard, if people want it, you've got your blog, you know, a little knowledge anywhere else people can check you out, a book, a website, anything like that? Um, right now, no, it'd be the, the blog series. All right, check it out. I enjoyed it. I, I appreciate the way you broke down the uh, the issue. Richard, thank you for joining us on It's Not Therapy. Thank you for having me. When we come back, final thoughts dealing with that dreaded word, appropriate. What is an appropriate way to express negative emotions? It's not so simple. When we come back on It's Not Therapy, questions, concerns, comments, Leanne at nottherapyshow.com. At nottherapyshow.com is the website. Fill out the contact form. Join the mailing list or Not Therapy Show on X. That's Twitter, Instagram, and threads. Back in a bit. The following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on Isna Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kersner. I'm still not a therapist. And my talk with Richard brought up the thorny subject of appropriate behavior. Now, appropriate behavior is something I slow down on because I work with a lot of autistic adults. I need to do a whole episode on the concept of appropriate. How do you know if you're being appropriate? Appropriate is connected to expectations and expectations constantly shift which means appropriate is highly subjective, which is why we have things like the golden rule and my top 10 phrases. 
things like people don't have to like your boundaries, but they do have to respect them are my way of assessing whether someone is behaving in a way I consider appropriate. I had a heartbreaking situation recently, literally lost sleep over it, where an autistic client of mine had an angry meltdown at a public online forum I was in charge of. The facilitators rightly checked him on a comment that wasn't appropriate. And he blew up and said a whole bunch of other inappropriate things. And he honestly did not understand why any of it wasn't appropriate. Why none of it was appropriate. That was a double negative there. I spent a day and a half in messages and video chat trying to explain the issue to this poor guy. And I'm still not sure we got clarity because he thought the joke was fine and he was being censored. And he thought the whole thing was just a simple mistake instead of seeing the way that he spoke to the moderators as abusive, which to most people, Yes, name-calling, appearance-based attacks, abusive. His realm, normal, completely appropriate. Clearly, his client has been exposed to people who name-call when they're angry. And so he's learned that name-calling when you're angry is appropriate behavior. And this brings up the importance of having places and times to feel negative emotions that are considered appropriate times and places to feel negative emotions. Also, in order to get better at feeling bad emotions, we need to know how to seek out happier, more supportive environments where people will meet us where we are and not shame us for feeling beat up so the negative feelings don't feel like they're gonna go on forever and we just can't take feeling bad anymore. Now, many people stuck in trauma constantly test the people around them, and this is understandable, but there comes a point in time where people have every right not to consent to further testing. Many clients I work with are going through the process of pruning their friend groups because they feel like they're always the ones suggesting things to do, organizing get-togethers and reaching out, and they're tired of being the one putting in the lion's share of the work. Constantly insisting that other people take the first risk because other people have hurt you in the past is a fast track to being a bad friend. If you're constantly sending out the message that you don't trust someone through these persistent loyalty tests, you know, taking a little dig at them and then expecting them to be a bigger person to show that they're not going to snap at you, they're not going to abandon you, guess what? That person is going to get the sense that you don't trust them and they're going to want less to do with you. Alternatives to these bad habits, these maladaptive self-defense mechanisms we learn early in life, take time to develop. Those early steps are really hard because you've got the process of adapting our behaviors that aren't helping us anymore. And then you have finding supportive environments. Both of these are trial and error. You got to try and it doesn't work and then you got to try again and that can be profoundly painful which is where people like me come in during the summer i tried an experiment 
I started some groups for people who had mental health issues that were not about their mental health issues. I knew what they were. I matched the people up. But these groups were about their art, writing, music, just being people. And guess what? It worked. The groups are supportive. They're still going on. Clients are seeing themselves as more than their illnesses. And they're able to open up bit by bit without fear of rejection or worrying about horrifying the whole room because everybody's got something. It's not therapy. It's not even art therapy. It's giving people a chance to be human in places where they know they'll be supportive when they aren't at their best, but where they're still encouraged to be their best, to do their best. And this is the missing piece. This was a missing piece for me when I was deep in trauma. I didn't know where to go to seek out good emotions without being treated as the sick one, the damaged one, the problem one, the one nobody wanted to be around, the one nobody wanted to work with, the broken one, the annoying one. It's essential that someone knows they can go somewhere and seek out good emotions. Knowing where to reach out for good feelings makes dealing with the bad feelings easier. That's what video games, music, certain comfort shows, friends, the sitcom Friends, rest in peace Matthew Perry, is a big one for a lot of people. Sometimes talking about the bad stuff helps. But you can get lost in a constant churn of rumination. People are not their mental illnesses. And everyone, everyone needs times and spaces where they're treated like a cool person and not a sick person. So something as simple as a regular get-together where people know that everybody has some struggle. No one is 100%. Maybe, you know, no one's totally doing great. Right? Or some people have struggles, but they're doing good. Other people are really struggling and want to do better. But it's very important to have those regular get-togethers. We meet every two weeks, the, the groups I work with. It's very important that they have that. We used to meet every three, and they're like, we want this more often. And so like, yeah, now they're meeting on their own, and that's amazing. Because they know, no matter how bad it gets, every two weeks... They have that safe place of good emotions. And it's not touchy-feely. Again, it's not tree-hugging. We, we affectionately grief each other about finishing books and not rewriting things. And we have our in-jokes and it's rowdy and it's, you know, it's just good times. A few weeks ago, one of them says, this feels like real friends. And... That both, what do you mean it feels like real friends? It is real friends, but also it made me happy because that was the point. Something that seemingly simple, just knowing a good time is coming again, can be a game changer in dealing with the bad feelings because that's what I talked about at the top of the show. It's, I'm feeling bad, I will feel good again versus the narrative that happiness is fleeting and the bad always returns. Both are true, but you get to choose which one you focus on 
for your best self and your best mental health. Okay, that's our time. Uh, NotTherapyShow.com, questions, comments, concerns, or Leanna at NotTherapyShow to email me directly or social media, NotTherapyShow on X, Instagram, and threads. Again, next week, we are going to be talking about shame, including sexual shame. Already got the guests lined up. Super excited. See you next week. Until then, you're crazy is only a problem if it's hurting you.